affects you and how that affects me. And so now we're going to have a mini series in First Corinthians 15. Now I say a mini series. I, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I thought, you know, preachers are foolish. Well, I, I, I thought I'm going to preach one sermon on the resurrection, the application of the resurrection out of First Corinthians 15, hit the high points and move on. Then you start studying the greatest treatise ever written by any man, and this one under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And you just can't move on. I mean, this is the greatest treatise on the resurrection that we have. This is it. And so uh, so I'm going to take it in some pieces, because you don't want to sit here as long as it would take me to unpack 58 verses on the resurrection. Your stomach won't last that long. Neither will mine. Okay, And also, uh, in this side, though, I know you're looking at my eye, and uh, I, I don't want it to be a distraction to you, so I'll bring it up. Uh, you know, the Apostle Paul had an infection in his eye, a serious infection. We, we, we get glimpses of his life, and, you know, in 2 Thessalonians, he says, you know, I'm writing this letter to you, and you know it's me because the handwriting's big and kind of sloppy, but it's my hand that writes these letters and we think that's the case because as you look back through his life, he, he had an infection, a type of uh, gonorrhea, which in, infected his eyes, inflamed his eyes, and, and brought on great pain. And yet he continued to preach. So I have poison ivy, not gonorrhea. <laughs> I know you're glad about that. <laughs> I have poison ivy in my eye, uh, and so and on my eyelid, and so... Um, you know, I just feel like I'm with the Apostle Paul now, only in that way, <laughs> only in that way. So don't let it be. I hope it's not a distraction to you. It's not to me, but uh, don't worry about me. I'm not. Uh, it's, it's no problem because I want to preach this sermon to you without distraction. I really want you to focus in your heart, in your mind on this sermon, not because I'm the great preacher, but because this is a unbelievable passage and will bring you great hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, um, you know, I want us to stand together now as we read the first 11 verses, not 58, but if would you stand with me out of respect and honor to His Word and follow with me in your text. 1 Corinthians beginning in 15.1. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. They've died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then I was I, it was I or they. So we preach, and so you believed. You may be seated. May God bless the reading and teaching of His Word. I don't remember how many funerals I preached in my short time as a pastor. My grandfather urged me to keep a funeral record, a funeral record, a wedding record, a baptism record, a baby dedication record. And, you know, I, I maybe should have listened to him, but I didn't do it. And I don't remember now how many I've preached. I've preached several. I've preached many in every category. I've 
been blessed and honored by God to be involved with funerals, weddings, births of babies, dedications of babies, baptisms of new believers in Jesus Christ. I guess it's, I guess, you know, in my mind, it's more part of the reason, one reason you might say I didn't keep the record was because in my mind, the ministry is not marked by funerals, weddings, even baptisms, the ministry is marked by whether the minister trains the people of God to be ministers. It's not about how many funerals you preach. It's about how many funerals you preside over that the people preached a good funeral in their life by being a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not about weddings. It's about how many marriages did you have the honor to speak the covenant words of God over as they launched out into gospel ministry in their marriage? That's what it's about. It's not about how many babies you hold and pray over. It's how many of those babies then become martyrs and missionaries and electricians and carpenters for Christ's sake to do their work. That's, that's really the mark, I think, of ministry. Ministry is about training the people of the church to do the work of the ministry. And so a record of those things is not bad. I guess you can though see into my mind that it's not really the burden of keeping a record. I just don't think it's the point of ministry. The gospel is the centerpiece of everything we do in life and ministry. The gospel is the centerpiece. It is the crucial point of history. It's the crucial point of the church. It's the crucial and crux of your life. It needs to be. I even will be so bold to say it better be. I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't really matter how many funerals you preach. It matters infinitely more that the people whose funeral you preach are prepared for eternity. And they're prepared by the gospel and nothing else. This week I had the honor of preaching a funeral. The godly lady who I had gone to, that had gone to be with the Lord was a friend to me. She was my friend, even though she was in her 80s. Her death was not a surprise. She was ready to face the Lord. This week I stood by the bed of Lisa Swinney, as some of you did, in ministering to her and to her family. I watched and prayed that God would have mercy on her. The pain was intense as she suffered from a simple surgical procedure that had turned out for the worse. As I talked with her and talked with her family, we were all left with gratitude to God that because of the Lord Jesus Christ, her suffering was only momentary. No matter how intense, it's only a moment. In comparison with her eternal reward, her suffering is minimal. Preaching a funeral and standing in a hospital room brings you face to face with the reality of the gospel and its eternal impact on personal lives. This week, I also sat with a family in our congregation, as Aaron mentioned. They were struggling with the, probably the worst news you can get. Cancer. One of the few words in the English language that just by mentioning it brings fear. Brings thoughts of suffering. That word's enough to drive a person to fear and to depression. There's probably no one in this room who has not either battled cancer personally or watched as someone that they love with all their heart has suffered with cancer. J.C. Robinson was told by his doctors that he had liver cancer and possibly he had lung cancer and possibly this cancer was in his lymph nodes. It was devastating, as you can imagine. Everyone was sad. Most of us were afraid of the next months and what those next months might hold for him. Everyone was looking to comfort him. You know, 
to bring him some word that might comfort him. But all he was worried about was everybody else. You know, he said, uh, he he sat like a picture of peace in the middle of a storm. He was a picture of faith and trust. Complete faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And His absolute sovereignty over cancer. He told me, we, we, we were sitting by ourselves, finally. Everybody kind of excused themselves one by one, found things to do so me and we could talk. When everybody left, the door closed. He looked me square in the eye. He said, I'm not worried. The Lord's going to take care of me. He's my God. It doesn't matter what happens with cancer. He will take care of me. What makes a man this confident? What gives a man this kind of resolve in the face of suffering? The answer is Christ. And that's the subject we take up this morning and over the next few weeks. Is Christ, the gospel, and the promise of the resurrection. So I hope you'll afford me a few weeks here. Although you probably want to get to the end on John. We'll get there, Lord willing. I just, I just feel like we need to focus on this. So let's look at this beginning of the passage here. And we're going to go through those first 11 verses this morning. And we're going to focus on the gospel. Listen, last Sunday, everybody in this room thought it would be a normal week. Myself included. And then one news after another began to come. I'm not trying to play doomsday with you. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to be real with you. We don't know what this week holds. We don't know what tomorrow brings. But we know that Jesus Christ holds tomorrow. And so you can choose to focus on cancer and suffering from uh, infection and, and, and death and all of those things. Or you can choose by your will and by faith to focus on Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to focus on. That's where I'm going. That's where I want you to go with me. Let's look at this passage looking for the hope, the comfort, the resolve that it brings. That only it can bring. There's nothing else that brings this resolve. And so we jump in here in verse 1. First we notice that Paul preaches the gospel. I don't want to belabor a point that you might think repetitive. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, after the first chapter detailing for us the gospel and the foolishness of the gospel to those who are not saved, but the joy and the resolve brought by the gospel for those who do believe, the fragrance of death to some and the beautiful fragrance of life to others, is the way he describes it. Then in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5, listen to this. He says, and I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Listen to this. For I decided to know, I decided to preach nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. I mentioned His eye infection. We believe that the Apostle Paul had a speech impediment. It was hard to look at him, and it was hard to listen to him. He was probably one of the most intelligent men to ever walk the face of the earth. But when you heard him speak, we know by 2 Corinthians that many who sat in that Corinthian congregation and heard him preach thought him to be a fool, thought him to be weak, thought him to be meaningless. They discredited his message because he was a vessel of weakness. And so he, far from running from that, turns to that and says, that's how I came to you, in weakness, in trembling, in fear, in struggling to even speak. 
but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith might not rest in wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The first thing Paul wants us to know in 1 Corinthians 15 is that he came to preach the gospel. He didn't come to impress. He didn't come dressed for success. He didn't come in great wisdom and oratory reasoning. Although he was well trained, he came in weakness. He came trembling. He came in fear. So why? So that your faith is not in who? In the messenger. But your faith is in the God of the message. You know, it's a hard balance, isn't it? Our churches today seem to be focused on the messengers and the messengers' vehicles. But they're not focused on the message and the one who gave us the message, Jesus Christ. Now, please don't take me wrong. I think we can be guilty of it. I think we are guilty of it sometimes. I'm not trying to blast everybody else. I'm trying to be real about our failure. We need to preach the gospel. We need to preach the gospel and we need to preach the gospel. How will you grow your church? Preach the gospel. How will people be mature? Preach the gospel. How will people impact their community? Preach the gospel. Well, maybe we should start a drama ministry. Preach the gospel. Maybe we should start a better choir. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. And when you're done preaching the gospel, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's that's what Paul said. That was his ministry. You say, well, he lived in a different era than we lived in. Look, the Greek pageants had been around for centuries at this point. Don't tell me he had no other way to communicate. They were better at drama than we ever dreamed of being. Most church drama teams are awful. You know it. We're not actors. Most movies commissioned in the name of the gospel by filmmakers in our day that are Christians, they're awful. They're a reproach on the gospel. Because they're pitiful. They're B-rated at best. But it's designed to try to entice and inflame all this love for the messenger and not the message. Preaching is, is given by God. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying just me preaching. I'm saying you preaching. You want to reach your neighbor for Christ? Live the gospel and preach the gospel. Live it and preach it. Live it and preach it. You want to reach your co-worker? Live it and preach it. The gospel and the gospel and the gospel. And that's what Paul says in the first verse. I remind you of the gospel I preached to you. I know I preached it, but I want to preach it again. Luther in his church preached the gospel at Wittenberg every Sunday. And he had this little lady, you've heard me tell this story before, who came to him and said, Brother Luther... You've been preaching the gospel for some time now. When will we move on to something else? And Luther said, when you begin to live like you know the gospel, then I'll preach another message. But we don't live like we know the gospel. So I'm going to preach the gospel. And he was straight to the point. He didn't coddle her feelings. He didn't say, well, what would make you feel better about church? We'll try that. No. He, like Paul said, it's all about the gospel. There's no other message to preach. No other hope that we have. Paul was absolutely convicted to spend his life preaching nothing but the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in our day, we spend our time trying to invent new ways, new ideas, creative, entrepreneurial, inventive ways to build the church of the living God. And all God says is, I will build my church And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's Jesus speaking, not Paul and not me. That's Jesus. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. On this, what rock, Jesus? On myself and the confession of faith in me. That's what I will build my church on. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. 
But how will they hear unless someone communicate, preach, bear witness to the gospel? How will they hear? How will they know? How will they believe? Paul said, I'm going to preach the gospel. Is grace fellowship, this is the question that's burning in me today, is for you, for me, are we committed enough that no matter what happens, no matter what circumstances arise, sickness, cancer, death, loss of members, growing churches, are we willing to stand on the gospel and preach it until He comes? we got to answer that question before that day comes. Or will we just sell out and become peddlers, as Paul calls them in Corinth? Peddlers, salesmen of the so-called gospel. we got to be careful. We never need to lose our focus. We need to have a focus of resolve like Paul. Now, these words are important, and I don't want to overburden us. I know... I can do that. So I, I just want to say, the word now, I would remind you, that phrase is so important. There's been lots of discussion, debate about that. It basically translates, moreover, that word now in your English text is better translated, moreover. It, it, it's breaking off from what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14. He's starting a whole new idea here. He's not building on his instructions previously. He's now... Starting, he's launching out anew. And and why do I say that? Because the first chapter is all about the gospel. And then I read that passage in chapter 2 where he said, I've resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I didn't come in wisdom. I didn't come in strength. I came in weakness and fear and trembling. But I displayed to you the power of God through the gospel. Then he wrote this whole letter dealing with all these issues which they had asked him about. And he's coming to the last Part of his writing. He's coming to drawing it to a close. And what does he say? Moreover, he, he, he says, I'm done answering your questions now. Moreover, he separates it and he says, I'm reminding you, brothers and sisters. Well, what does it mean? I'm reminding. That's kind of a weak translation. The better suggestion is, moreover, I make known to you as I made known to you before I make known to you now. As I'm preached to you before, I'm preaching to you again. It's Paul's life refrain. Preach the gospel. I'm preaching to you. Moreover, I'm preaching to you. I'm proclaiming to you. I'm making known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I already preached to you. Which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul is telling us and telling his readers that the gospel that they believed in, get this, has saved them, is saving them, and will ultimately save them. Your salvation is not a past tense. Your salvation is past, present, and future. When Paul talks about salvation, he tends to not always spell it out, but he always is telling us salvation is historical, present, and future. Why do do I bring that point out? Why would Paul do it that way? Look what he did there in the text. He said, I preach to you the gospel. I'm reminding you or I'm proclaiming to you this message that I already preached to you. It's the gospel which you received. They believed it in which you stand and by which you are being saved. Why would he go through such detail? Well, there's a reason for it. And you don't need to miss it, and I don't need to miss it. His confidence in their salvation is not that they have professed faith, though that is great, and he's overjoyed by that. Unless they finish in faith, their proclamation and belief at the beginning is worthless. I'm not preaching you can lose your salvation. I am preaching that if you don't make it to the end in faith in Jesus Christ, you were never saved. That's what I'm saying. So when cancer hits you and you laying in the bed say, I no longer want this Jesus, then what Paul would say is you never wanted Him. You wanted His gifts. You thought He'd make you healthy. But you didn't want Him. 
When your wife gets an infection and dies and leaves you with children to raise, Paul says, now we find out how good your faith is. Is it the faith which you believed in, which you're standing in, and which you will be saved by? You see the tension he's pulling at. Yes, you are saved, but you're not yet saved. In other words, the jury is out on you and on me until we draw our last breath. I'm not trying to teach lack of confidence in Christ. I'm trying to teach you that you should have no confidence except Christ. That's what Paul's trying to teach. In other words, he says, even if I preach to you another gospel, contrary to the one I previously preached to you, to the people of Galatia, then I'm accursed. He says, if I don't stand on this gospel, then I'm not saved. What am I saying? Confidence cannot even be in your profession of faith. You're taking away all my confidence. Good. Now you can hold fast to your faith in Christ. Your confidence can't be in a profession. It can't be in an act of walking the aisle, being baptized, joining a church, doing good things, having a good marriage, being a great dad. It can't be in any of those things. It has to be in Christ. Paul's stripping away. He's about to tell us the gospel again, by the way. But he's stripping away everything else. He's saying, you received what I preached to you, and you're standing in it, and you will stand in it in the end if you did not believe in vain. See, he brought up this contingency, what, what appears to be and is a contingency in faith. We don't like dealing with that. We come from a strain of bad theology which says one saved, always saved. Again, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that those who are saved can ever be lost. What I'm saying is there are many who say they are saved that are not saved. And when the trials of this life come... They are exposed as having believed in vain, false faith. And so Paul says, I'm, I'm going to preach to you the gospel, which I already preached. You believed it, you're standing in it, and you will be saved by it if, you notice he put the if, if you hold fast. You're saved I would translate this way. You're saved if you hold fast. Because the emphasis is on not your ability, but in its ability. You are saved by the gospel. If you hold fast to the gospel. You can't start in it and finish in something else and be saved. Some of you have started in the Spirit and you're trying to finish in your effort and your legalism. And may I just tell you, you will die in your sin. Some of you started in true faith in, in, in the gospel that you heard preached and now you're trying to finish by having no law. I do whatever I want because grace abounds and you will die in your sin. You begin with the gospel, you live by the gospel, and by the grace of God, you die in the gospel. That's the hope. That's the gospel hope that comes only from Jesus Christ. He's telling us the gospel is secure salvation for us. Unless our faith is worthless, this, unless you believed in vain, your faith might be worthless. Faith can be worthless. Faith is not able to save. It's the object of faith which saves. Well, he seems so sincere. I don't care how sincere you might be if your faith is in anything or anyone besides Jesus Christ. It is a fool's faith. It's a false gospel. And you will die in your sin. He is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. You can't come to the Father except by Him. This passage convinces me, as I was saying, I just put this here. I, I'm, I'm putting this theology on it, but I think the theology is in it. This here is Luther's 
For we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. This is it. Does it say those words? No. But the idea is here. I want you to leave today with zero confidence in yourself and 100% confidence in Jesus Christ. I want you to leave here with zero confidence in Grace Fellowship and 100% confidence in Jesus Christ. I want you to leave here with zero confidence in your family, in in, in anything in this world, and 100% confidence in the one who stands and ever pleads your case before the Father by His perfect and precious blood. I want you to know and feel and live the gospel of Jesus Christ so that when you lay on your deathbed, you can say, I'm not worried. God is my God and He will take care of me. That's what I want. That's what I'm pleading with you to have is confidence in Christ and in Christ alone. And I just warned that there are a lot of false gospels floating. And we drink them in without good screening mechanisms every day. Be on alert. Second, we see the content of the gospel. Now, (laughs) it seems so elementary, doesn't it? I delivered to you as of first importance. He's emphasizing again, this is the first thing. This is the most important. What I also received, that Christ... Listen to this. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul just wrote the Gospel. That's it. And we debate about what, what, is, what is the Gospel. Some might ask. Well, I hear, over here I hear this, and over here I hear this, and over there I hear... No. The Gospel is this. It is the good news. It is the message. It is the historical reality. It is the... We proclaim it as done. He was dead. He was buried. And He was raised from the dead. That's the Gospel. In a nutshell, that's it. Christ died. That's the first thing He says. Christ died. Listen to this passage. In uh, Isaiah chapter 53. 5 and 6. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes, we are healed. Much deeper than physical healing. In here, in Isaiah, it's we are healed from our sin. We've not received the antidote to cancer. We've received the antidote to the cancer of sin. Which is canceled now. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus Christ, I, I put it there, on him, on Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. Christ died, Paul said. He could have quoted Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. He put it simply, Christ died. Romans 3, 21 through 26, Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption in Jesus Christ. Or Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. A satisfaction by His blood. This is, this is Christ died. Paul says that the sacrifice of Christ was done according to the Scripture. Christ died according to the Scripture. That little phrase, you're tempted to just read right past it, aren't you? What's the big deal with that? Because Paul doesn't want the Corinthians, and he doesn't want you to think he's teaching on his authority. He's saying Christ died, not because I said he did, but because the Bible promised he would. The Bible said he would. What passage is he referring to? Isaiah 53 is a clear witness to the death of Christ. Psalm chapter 22 is a clear witness to the death of Christ. But I think it's much more than that. I think every time you see a verse, a description of the sacrificial system in the law and in the prophets, 
It's referring us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, the head of every family in Israel for century upon century and millennia on millennia laid their hand on a head of a sheep that was one year old, male, without spot, without blemish, without defect. He laid his hand on it and said the words of transferring sin from his family to the sheep. Substitutionary atonement. He laid his hand on on the head of that sheep, and then that sheep was slaughtered to point him to the cross. Paul says, it's by the Scripture Christ died. He didn't die of a random act of violence, crime against him. He died by a foreordained plan, which God had laid out and given us in the Old Testament. He died in our place. Christ died. That's the first point. Secondly, Christ was buried. We overlook his burial. The Apostles' Creed doesn't. The Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the earliest confession known to us in historical Christianity. Listen to what it says. Christ was crucified, dead, and buried. Christ was crucified, dead, and buried. Again, we think, he's, it's repetitive. Christ died. Christ was buried. No, it's important. Why? Because he didn't just fall asleep on the cross. Now, you laugh. There's a lot of supposed wise people who believe he passed out and then was nursed back to health. No. No. Christ died and he was buried, sealed in death, wrapped in cloth, packed in aloe and other spices, and laid in a tomb. That was where Christ was laid. He was buried. Isaiah 53, 9 again says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Joseph of Arimathea brought that passage to reality when he went and asked for Christ's body that he might bury him in his tomb, a rich man burying Jesus in his tomb, which no one else had ever lived in or died in or been buried in. Christ died and Christ was buried and Christ was raised from the dead. At the beginning of this sermon series on the resurrection, you need to understand Christ was raised from the dead. The, the resurrection is crucial to the teaching of the gospel. And matter of fact, I cringe now as I think about the fact that I often have not brought this point out clearly enough in my teaching. But the apostles never failed to bring this point out. Peter, preaching the very first recorded historical sermon post-Christ's resurrection and ascension back to heaven at Pentecost in the presence of thousands. Listen to what he says in Acts 2, 24-28. God raised him up, Christ, up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad. These are the words of David. And my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. Now, Peter's quoting Psalm 16. He's quoting Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And then he gives the commentary on that passage. The Jews for centuries have read that passage. Some of them got it. Some of them didn't. And they were probably confused. David's dead. He's in the grave. He can't have a son. What, what's going to happen to us? And listen to what Peter says in verses 29 through 32. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he is both, has both died and was buried and he is in the tomb with us to this very day. At that moment, every Jew there said, how will God keep His promise? David said he wouldn't see corruption, and he's obviously corrupted. Now look, his interpretation, his commentary, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would let one of his descendants sit on the throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, 
Listen, we've been waiting on Jesus to be enthroned. The Bible says under the authority of the apostle, he was enthroned on the throne of David when he was resurrected from the dead. We don't serve a dead Christ. I want you to get this. Without the resurrection, his death is meaningless. We aren't waiting for him to be enthroned. He has been enthroned. He is enthroned on the throne of David this day. And I'm going to go on and jump ahead in the text. If he's not, close your Bible. Let's go home and live however we choose to live until we die. Because we are the most to be pitied among men if Christ was not raised from the dead. I tell you, Jesus is reigning and He is ruling and He is unshaken to this very day. Because the pains of death could not hold Him. And He was resurrected. That's Peter's commentary. You wonder how he will get the throne of his father David? Don't wonder. Peter told us he got it when he was resurrected. And you can focus on physical thrones and physical cities on physical maps. I choose to focus on the Word of God which says he is enthroned. The prophecy has been fulfilled in the resurrection. He's raised up and he is seated on that throne And He is ruling and reigning. I tell you, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, He abandoned, He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did His flesh see destruction. This Jesus God raised up, and of what of that we all are witnesses. That's the words of Peter the Apostle. Our salvation is secure because He is raised up and seated on the throne in heaven, the throne of David forevermore. Third, we see Paul appears to our, he appeals to eyewitness proof for the resurrection. He doesn't stop with the historical fact. He moves on to press on us the importance of the resurrection to the witnesses. Luke 24:34 says Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the others because it says the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. This is prior to any other appearance. He appeared to Simon. And so he says here, he appeared to Cephas, Peter, Simon, same one. Then to the twelve. Now I know Judas is gone. This is the way they refer to the apostles, to the twelve. Judas is gone, but Jesus had called them the twelve, and so the church continued to call them the twelve apostles in this day. So he appeared to the twelve, and then to more than five hundred at one time. Now, I listen, it's not in the Gospels, but it's clear through the witness of the early church that he did this. I don't know when, I don't know where, but he appeared to them all at one time. And then to James, he appeared to James. Not James, the son of Alphaeus, James, the brother of Jesus. The pillar of the Jerusalem church. You want to know how Jesus converted his brother? He died on the cross, was buried, and raised from the dead, and showed up, resurrected, and said, Brother, I'm the Lord. And from that moment, James became a pillar. His faith was unshakable, even to martyrdom. Even the death. He was beheaded. He was beheaded because he believed this gospel. James, the pillar of the church, according to Galatians 2.9. So he doesn't just stop with the facts. He moves to eyewitnesses. And why is that so important? Just a brief note. In any court of law, two non-contradictory witnesses to any event without court contradictory evidence any court of law will recognize those two witnesses as truthful. Paul said, you need witnesses. He appeared to Cephas. He appeared to the twelve. He appeared then to to the five hundred. He appeared to his brother James. He's alive. 
You need two witnesses? I hand you hundreds. It's historical. It's verified. Finally, we see the impact of the gospel on the life of Paul. You know, this part of the passage is so personal. The language changes. It becomes intensely personal. Last of all, as the one untimely born appeared to me. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church of God. But I am what I am by the grace of God. And I worked harder than any of them. But it wasn't I who worked. It was the grace of God working through me. So whether I preached or they preached, we all preached the gospel. And it's this gospel you believed in. That's, that's personal. That, you can argue with Paul about the resurrection, but Paul says, look, that's what I've given my life to. So we see it's historical. We see the gospel is simple. We see the gospel is sufficient to not only save us, but to give us life every day. And it will be the power of the gospel that allows us to stand with Christ in glory. It will be the gospel which allows us to stand. This is so plain. This passage is so plain and yet it's so deep. Paul is urging on us belief. Pressing us to believe. Place your faith. Believe not in vain, but in Christ. If you believe in Christ, it is not in vain. If this is not the true gospel, then we've all lived in vain, Paul will later say. But it is true. I saw it. I saw him. I preached a funeral this week for Gaitha Pitts. The message was the power of putting your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's, that's the message I preached at the funeral. I comforted Lisa Swinney and Dave and the Burke family with the power of the gospel to make our suffering, no matter its severity, no matter its severity, the gospel makes our suffering temporary, momentary. And I held the hand of J.C. Robinson to reassure his confidence in the power of God, even in death, because the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. One died. Gaither Pitts died. One suffered and still is suffering. Lisa's still suffering. Another friend is dealing with the fact that his life will one day come to an end. Now, by the grace of God, he doesn't have cancer. But yesterday, I sat with him and he said, I'm still going to die. He's got his confidence in the right place. And the only hope for any of them, the only hope for Gaither Pitts or her family, the only hope for Lisa Swinney or her family, the only hope for J.C. Robinson and his family is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm trying to say. And that's, that's what this text says. The fact is Jesus Christ was crucified, He was dead, He was buried, and He was resurrected by the power of God. And on that on the third day in a keeping with what the Scripture said would happen. And all I'm saying is, believe it. Trust it. Hold fast to it. As you would hold on to a rope dangling over a cliff, as if your life depended on it, hold on to the Gospel. I wonder if you've thought of your life that way. I'm talking to lost people and saved people. Don't tune me out because you say, well, I know about the gospel. Listen, your life is dangling over the pit of destruction. God, by His common grace, at this moment is holding you, lost man, woman, or child, by His common grace, because He is merciful. You deserve right now to die sitting in your seat and taste death 
for eternity in hell. That's what you deserve. And it's only because He is gracious that you're not there already. And so what I'm saying is, right now you're being held by God and you're not holding on to Him at all. And the gospel is there in front of you. And all I'm saying is, believe it. Your hands can't save you. You're dangling over a pit, flailing at the air. And God is holding you up. And He now dangles this morning the gospel of Jesus Christ in front of you. He holds it out. Christ and Christ crucified and dead and buried and resurrected. He's holding it in front of you. And all I'm saying is, your hand can't save you. But if you hold fast to that gospel... You will all of a sudden find a rock. No longer suspended over Hades and hell and suffering. You're now standing. Where did that rock come from? Hold on. And saved person, what I'm telling you is, you're holding on by the grace of God. And you will need to continue to hold on by the grace of God until you are glorified. Hold on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you do, the rock will never fail you. If you take your eyes and you take your grip off of that rock, then you are holding on to a false Christ, not the true Christ, and you are dangling over the pit again. Hold on. By faith. What are my hands? They can't save me, but they're faith. God gives them to me to hold to Christ. He saves, not faith. Christ saves. Faith is an instrument to hold to salvation in Christ. And that's all it is. Hold on to Jesus. I'm begging you to hold on to Him. I'm not trying to scare you into heaven and out of hell, but I am trying to bring you to a full understanding of how desperate you are and how desperate you are in need of Him. Believe. I can't make you. But I have confidence that the wind of God blows where it will. And so the seed that is sown, the wind of God blows... And brings forth fruit from that seed. Let's pray. Father.